Few of the Americans returning from travel in Europe recognized Ivar at this point. In 1922, he was not yet a household name. But everyone would have seen him hasten aboard at the last minute. He rushed through the reception line, carrying an elegant cane and a dispatch case stuffed with papers. Once aboard, he scanned the crowd, headed for the largest group of unattached women he could find, and introduced himself with a bow. When he opened his mouth to speak, it was clear that this was no mere mafia don. He spoke in beautifully constructed paragraphs, the sentences forming patterns like the parallel zigzags and hooks embroidered in the medieval Viking tapestries that had become so popular in his native Sweden. Did they know Berengaria was christened after the wife of Richard the Lionheart? Ivar's eyes twinkled as he remarked that the name was apt, was it not? He turned from group to group, working the crowd, posing questions like an inquisitive teenage boy, and then answering himself with the sagacity and life experience of a man twice his age. Would this trip be safe? Of course, Berengaria was 5,000 tons heavier than Titanic, with a stronger, safer hull, and redesigned bulkheads that were high and watertight. New maritime rules, enacted after Titanic sank a decade earlier, mandated that every cruise ship carry stacks of lifeboats. Wireless communications were now flawless. It was unimaginable that a ship, particularly one from the Cunard Line, could be stranded at sea without radio contact. What about the first-class cabins? Ah, yes, they were all stunning, all 714 of them, resembling rooms in a fine German home, with covered verandas stocked with live greenery. Those three towering funnels? Surprisingly, one was a dummy, just for show, or, as Ivar might have preferred to put it, for aesthetic balance. The clean air on deck? The ship's two working funnels were technological marvels, did they know Berengaria was the first luxury liner to burn oil instead of coal? Although Ivar dominated every conversation, he did so with a modest, almost self-deprecating air. He seemed apologetic, even embarrassed, that he knew all these things. As he moved among the passengers, he left them feeling that they, not he, had been asking all the questions. Even as Ivar held forth, they wanted him to say more, not less. Ivar interlaced snippets about art, architecture, film, and travel, and crisscrossed topics from the Dutch masters to Dreiser, to winter gardens, to the stunning teenage actress he had just discovered in Stockholm. When the Vikings stitched together strips of cloth, they built a continuous dramatic arc from the top left of a tapestry to the bottom right. When Ivar began weaving a story, he created a similar effect— a listener had no choice but to follow him to the end. Whatever the topic, though, Ivar always returned to business. He might quote a stanza of poetry or an excerpt from a political speech in one of five languages he spoke fluently, but invariably he would next mention how it brought to mind a passage from a quarterly corporate report he recently had read or an announcement by a leading firm. The thread of his argument would be surprisingly continuous— and it would become apparent that Ivar had been moving the conversation toward that business item from the beginning. Even more striking than Ivar's flowing prose was his gaze. When he locked into one of the passengers, everyone else melted away, 
Even the strongest personalities were mesmerized by the fix of his stare. As one of Ivar's closest colleagues put it, There was an odd air of greatness about Ivar. I think he could get people to do anything. They fell for him. They couldn't resist his peculiar charm and magnetism. Above all, there was a look about him that made a difference. I saw J.P. Morgan's eyes many times in New York. They were like fire coals, but Ivar's eyes were not like that. They had another quality. Though small and narrow, they seemed capable, if he desired, of looking right through you.